the seventh verse in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now to get the context we must read with it verse 6 because the word for at the beginning of this seventh verse obviously is connecting it with what he's just been saying. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that in order that the body of sin might be disannulled, put out of operation, that henceforth we should not be slaves to sin or serve sin as slaves. For he that is dead is free, freed from sin. Now, we all must have noticed that almost every single statement in this vital and all-important chapter is pregnant with thought and of the greatest possible significance to us in the Christian life from the standpoint of our life and living and our warfare against sin. And therefore, as we come to approach this particular verse, which, as I'm going to try to show you, has caused a great deal of perplexity to many people and a good deal of disagreement, it is essential that we should approach it in its whole context. Now, I am taking my time deliberately with all these great statements, because, as I say, they are so important. And let me add this. No one has ever pretended that this is an easy or a simple chapter. It's a crucial chapter, but it's not an easy chapter. And therefore, we must take our time, because you notice the argument is so closely woven that if you don't follow one step, well, you can't possibly follow the next. Each one keeps on leading to the next. So it is really very urgently important that we should be clear about these terms and their meaning as we go along. Because when the apostle has worked out his argument and laid down his doctrine, as it were, he's then going to make an appeal to us. Well, you can't respond to an appeal if you don't know what the basis of the appeal is. As the apostle Paul himself puts it in writing to the Corinthians, you remember, in the first uh, epistle and in the 14th chapter, if the trumpet yield an uncertain sound, who shall prepare him for the battle? The mere fact that you hear a trumpet sound is not enough. What's he saying? Is he telling us that we can go on sleeping or that we must get up at once and go to arms? If the trumpet yield an uncertain sound, who shall prepare him for the battle? It's exactly the same here. If we're not clear about the terms that we're dealing with here, well, how can we follow him when he comes on to verse 11 and says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. And the exhortations that follow in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, it is important, I say, we should be clear about all this. So that once more, I really must paint the whole background for you. It is only as we've got all these steps in our minds that we can deal with this next step. 
Now then, here is the main idea. The apostle is setting out to refute this false charge that is being brought against him. People are saying, ah, this man's preaching of justification and about grace superabounding and reigning unto righteousness is just a plain-faced incitement to sin. The only conclusion to draw from this teaching, they said, is, well, let us continue in sin, that grace may abound. Where sin aboundeth, grace does that much more abound. Therefore, let us continue in sin, that grace may abound and superabound in this way. Now then, the apostle at once deals with this. He's, he's shocked at it. God forbid, he says, let it not be mentioned. And at once he lays down his main argument. He says, this is impossible for this reason. How shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? Now then, there's the fundamental proposition. But you remember, we have seen that the apostle now goes on to elaborate that. That is the main case. How shall we that died to sin at a given point, once and forever, how shall we that have died to sin live any longer therein? Now then, he's going to take this up and work it out a bit more in detail for us. And as he does so, his great point is this, that the thing we must never lose sight of is that as Christian people, we are not only forgiven and reconciled to God, we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ we are one with him. In exactly the same way as we used to be joined with Adam, in exactly the same way as all our troubles have come to us because we were joined to Adam and in Adam, all of us who are Christians are in Christ, are joined to Christ, and are partakers of the benefits of what he has done. Now that's the parallel, you see, which we must keep in mind. It's the parallel that he worked out in chapter 5 from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Now, he's still going on with this. And very well then, having laid this down, he proves this in verses 3 and 4. That because we are joined to Christ, we have been crucified with him, we have died with him, we have been buried with him, and we have risen again with him. That's what he says in verses 3 and 4. Then in verse 5, he, as it were, sums it up by saying, For if we have been planted together, united together in an indissoluble manner in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now that's a very crucial statement then. Now there are two propositions in that, you see. The first half is a negative proposition which says that we have been united together with him indissolubly in his death. And therefore, because we are in him and united to him, it follows that we, in the second half, positively, that we must be also united indissolubly with him in his resurrection also. Verse 5 then has got a negative section, a positive section. In verses 6 and 7, he works out the negative section, the first section of verse 5. He's going to show now why and how we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, he will come to the positive half of verse 5 and will show how 
We are planted together in the likeness of his resurrection and what that means to us. Well, now then, we last week were dealing with verse 6, which is the first part of the elaboration of the negative section of verse 5, that we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. What does that mean? Well, we've seen it means this, that our old man was crucified with him. Notice the tense. Our old man was, once and forever, at a given point. It's the aorist. It's a completed action. It's not something that's going on. It has happened, and it's happened once and forever. Our old man was crucified with him. And remember that we have interpreted the old men as standing for the men that we were in Adam, our Adamic men, all that was true of us when we were united to Adam and joined to Adam, that is the thing that was crucified and died and buried with Christ, that old man that I was in Adam. Now, I've been at pains to emphasize that it does not mean the old nature. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that people, many are in some confusion and difficulty about all this. That's why I'm going all over it again. Some have come and asked me questions. I hear of others talking. I seem to have set uh, going a whole series of private conferences. Well, I think that's very good. I think that's very good. I, I'm greatly encouraged by that. And I do hope that will go on. And I'm prepared to stay in verses 6 and 7 as long as you like, because they're so important. I, I, I want the thing to be made plain and clear, because as I say, this chapter, if we can only understand it, is the most encouraging chapter, I'm almost prepared to say, in the whole of the Bible. Its whole object, you see, is to show the absolute certainty of our salvation. Now, that has been his theme since the beginning of chapter 5, and he's still dealing with it. The absolute certainty of our complete and final and entire deliverance. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do, and he's going to do it. And the apostle is showing us here now how step by step and stage by stage we understand that and how it's being carried out. Now then, I say the old man does not mean the old nature. And I'm saying that for this reason. If it does mean the old nature, well then the apostle is saying this. Knowing that our old nature was once and forever crucified, died, buried with Christ. It's just gone completely. That, I say, leads to but one thing, and that is sinless perfection. It means that there is no sin in us any longer. If my old nature is gone, well, there's no sin in me. I am sinless, I am perfect. That is why I cannot accept that old man means old nature. It leads directly to sinless perfection. Not only that, if old man means old nature... And it is true of every Christian. Remember, we must grasp that. We've been emphasizing it all along. This we stands for every Christian. 
Not certain special Christians who've had some unique or special experience. He's talking about all Christians. All were in Christ. You see, the difficulty that remains is this. If my old nature has been crucified, dead and buried and has gone forever, well, how do I explain the consciousness of remaining sin of which we are all aware? It just cannot be explained. And therefore, one must reject this exposition of the old man as being the old nature. Now, the only serious problem or difficulty, if you like, which is worthy of consideration, it seems to me, at this point, is one which uh, I thought I had dealt with uh, fairly adequately some two or three weeks ago, but as I've actually been asked a question about it, as if I hadn't mentioned it, it seems to me that I must mention it once more. People have said to me, now, in the light of your exposition, how do you explain Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, where we read this, that he put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new men, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now they say, how do you reconcile that with your exposition of Romans 6, 6? For there we are exhorted to put off the old men, and to put on the new men. And you were telling us that the old man was crucified with Christ once and forever. Well, now, this is, I say, a good question, because the same term is used, the old men. How do we approach this? Well, let me repeat what I said before. A good rule, indeed, it's a, it's a universal rule with regard to exposition, is this. When you find the same word or the same term in different parts of the Bible, always give it the same meaning unless there is some special or overwhelming reason found in the context or because of some theological result, unless there is some such very special reason, hold to the same meaning and don't vary it. But there are times when there is some overwhelming reason for not giving a word or a term the same meaning, and this is one of them. Now, the Apostle, you see, in Romans 6, 6 says that our old man was crucified. It's something that's happened to him. It was done to him. It was done once and forever. But in Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4, 22 to 25, we are exhorted to put off the old man. Well, now then, obviously, it cannot mean the same thing. Otherwise, the Apostle is contradicting himself. He cannot exhort us to put off something that has been crucified once and forever and put away. No, you see, what he says in Ephesians 4.22 is this, that he put off concerning the former conversation, the old men. So that clearly here the old men is just used as a term by him to cover the kind of conversation, conduct or behavior that was characteristic of the old men. What we've got to put off is the conversation of the old man, rather than the old man himself. So I once more repeat what I have said many times before from this pulpit. What he's really saying in Ephesians 4.22 is this, is what we say to a grown-up adult man, 
who may be filled with a spirit of fear and is whimpering and crying, we say to him, don't be a baby. What we mean is this, you are not a baby, therefore don't behave as if you were a baby. Now that's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4.22. He says, you have been born again. Your old man has been, was crucified with Christ. Well, don't go on behaving as if the old man was still there. Be what you are. Don't be what you're not. Don't be a baby. He's not telling the men to put off babyhood. The man's already long since left babyhood. It's because he's a man you tell him don't be a baby. Now that's Ephesians 4:22 to 25. In other words, there is no contradiction here. The context makes the thing abundantly plain and clear. Ephesians 4:22 is concerned about conduct, conversation. This is concerned about the old man himself and not his mere conduct or conversation. Very well then, I trust that that is, is clear. So the old man means the old man that I was in Adam, the personality that I was, as I was joined to LinkedIn and reaping all the consequences of Adam's transgression. Right, body of sin. Our old man was crucified with him, that in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. And this we expounded, you remember, as meaning our bodies as used by sin. Not the body in and of itself, but the body as used by sin or misused by sin. That's the thing he says that's got to be put an end to. My old man was crucified in order that this remaining use of my body by sin might be disannulled, might be rendered ineffective. So if you like, a very good way of translating body of sin is indeed to call it the old nature. The difference between the old man and the body of sin is the difference between my old self and my old nature. Now that is the actual translation used by a very good translator of Paul's epistles called Arthur S. Way. He translates old men by old self. He translates body of sin by old nature. And I think it is a most excellent uh, translation. So that then you see what the Apostle is asserting is that the whole object of my old man being crucified with Christ is that I may be delivered entirely and completely from the slavery of sin, that henceforth we should not be slaves of sin. We should not slave it to sin. That sin might no longer be the one whom we are serving. Now, we have not yet reached the stage of application. But as everybody is so anxious to go on to the stage of application, and are saying, well now, how does all this help me? Well, this is the answer. If you do not realize that yourself is more important than your nature, well, then obviously you can't follow the apostle's argument. My dear friend, the most tremendous thing you'll ever be told is this, that your old self has gone. And I can deal with my old nature because my old self has gone, and I've got a new one. This is the most striking and amazing thing. 
The problem of my old nature becomes a comparatively simple one once I realize that my old self is gone. My old self, that self that was in Adam, was an utter slave to sin, the whole of me. That's no longer true. That self is gone. I'm a new self, a new man. And the moment I realize that I'm a new man, well, now I'm in a better position to deal with this old nature that remains in my body, in my physical body, in what he calls my mortal flesh. You remember the verses I quoted last week. He says in chapter 7, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Well, now, isn't that a most marvelous thing to be able to say? I am not doing this. It's this remnant of sin that remains in my members. Sin is no longer in me, it's in my members only. If that isn't the most liberating thing you've ever heard, well then I almost despair of you. That's the thing that the apostle is saying. This, he says, is the way of salvation. Can't you realize it, he says, that yourself, your old self is gone. Never think of yourself in those terms again. Now, I really am yielding to a very wrong kind of pressure, this idea to go on to the practical before we finish the theoretical, but lest somebody is really unhappy about all this, I say this for your encouragement and for your comfort just as we go along. This is how it works out. I find that so many people, so many Christian people are unhappy because every time they fall into sin, they raise the whole question again as to whether they're Christians at all. Now, many of you I know are doing that. You fall into sin, and you begin to say to yourself, well, now, is it possible that I'm a Christian at all? Because if I really were a Christian, how could I possibly sin like this? So every time you sin, you're raising the whole question of your salvation. That is the thing that the apostle is nailing here. He says you mustn't do that. You mustn't raise again the whole question of your salvation every time you sin. You yourself as a being and as a person in the sight of God are in Christ. You are joined to Christ, indissolubly, planted together in the likeness of his death and of his resurrection. And as he will wind up eventually at the end of chapter 8, he says there is nothing, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So you see, the difference is this, that if I grasp this teaching, when I fall into sin, I shall not again say, am I a Christian or not? I shall say, of course I am. My old man has been crucified. He is justified. I'm the new man in Christ. I'm accepted of God. I am a Christian. Well, very well, then what about this sin? Oh, this is something that cannot separate me. This is not something that affects my salvation. I don't need to be converted all over again. No, no, I am a new man. Well, why, why this sin? Well, it is in my members. It's this body of sin that remains. But I am in a salvation that's even going to get rid of that. I realize I'm doing something inconsistent. Yes, inconsistent because I am a Christian, not because it's doubtful whether I'm a Christian. 
the inconsistency arises because I am a Christian. That's why Paul is so anxious that we should realize that our old men, our old self, was crucified. He's gone. Never bring him back again. And by wondering whether you're a Christian, you're simply bringing back the old man that has been crucified, that died, that was even buried, as he says, that's gone forever. Now then, there is the practical aspect. But of course, it's when we come on to verse 11, we ought to be doing that. You've caused me again to anticipate what should be left. I have yielded to the pressure which has come to me, you see, in the form of a temptation. Very well. Well, now then, having said all that, I can proceed to the seventh verse. But you see the importance of being clear about this. We can't possibly go on to verse 7 while people are still in a muddle about verse 6. So those of you who were clear, I am sure, will pay heed to the scriptural and apostolic exhortation, He that are strong bear with the infirmities of the weak. I hope that none of the stronger brethren here tonight are feeling restive and impatient with me or with their weaker brethren. You shouldn't. You should bear with them, and we must all go on and advance together. Very well, that brings me to verse 7. Now then, he that is dead, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Here again, there is disagreement. Here again, there are varying expositions. What is he saying here? Well, he is winding up his argument. This negative first half of verse 5. He's made his main statement in verse 6. He's now putting it again. This is what is done, he says, and he's summing up the whole position. Now then, where is the difficulty about this verse? Oh, the difficulty arises here. About the translation, those of you who've got the revised version in front of you in the pews will find that it reads like this. He that is dead or he that has died is justified from sin. And because of that translation, justified, an entirely different exposition of this verse is put forward. Now, it's very interesting to notice that while the revised version translates it as justified from sin, the revised standard version, once more, and we've seen this on previous occasions, is in the same position as the authorized version and uses freed from sin. You remember how we once saw that in that most important verse in Second Timothy, about all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We saw there that the revised version had gone wrong, but that the revised standard has put it right again. Well, here's another instance I want to try and show you of the same thing. That the revised standard version agrees with the authorized version. Well, now, what difference does it make, you say, to translate this as justified instead of freed? Oh, this is what it makes the argument is that this word, which is translated here as freed and which should be translated as justified, is everywhere else in this epistle and in other places always translated as justified and not as freed, and therefore should not have been translated as freed here. 
And that the statement, therefore, which the apostle is making is this. That all of us who have died, then they have to put in with Christ, have been justified from the guilt of sin. Now, you'll find certain well-known commentators interpreting it like that. Because we are justified from what? From the guilt of sin. Ah, they say the word here is justified. So what the apostle is saying here is this, therefore, that all of us who have died with Christ have been justified from the guilt of sin. Then they try to go on and argue like this. They're in difficulties because they can see that that isn't the matter that the apostle is dealing with here at all. So they have to go on then to say this. Why does he say that? Well, he says it for this reason. Because we have been justified from the guilt of sin, we are once more in a living relationship with God. And therefore we can now be blessed with, by God. We can therefore receive power from God. And therefore, you see, they say, our justification rarely, in a sense, inevitably leads to our sanctification. Because it puts us into touch with God, and we shall get from God the power that we need to fight the battle against sin. That is their statement, that is their argument. And then they've got a further argument, which I must mention, to be fair to this position. They say now, there is the word freed used in these translations again in verses 18, 20, and 22. Listen. Verse 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. For when ye were the servants of sin, verse 20, ye were free from righteousness. Verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now they say, there you've got the word free or freed used three times. And there the apostle did not use the same word in the Greek as the word he uses here in verse 7. In verse 7, he used the word that is generally translated as justified. The word he uses in verses 18, 20, and 22 is not the word that is generally used for justified or justification. So they say the thing is quite complete. If he meant freed, he would have used the same word as he uses in verses 18, 20, 22. But he deliberately used the word that is normally translated as justified. Well, now then, do we accept this exposition? Do we agree that what the apostle is saying here is this, that all of us who are, who are joined to Christ and who have therefore died with him have been justified from the guilt of sin? Well, uh, I am here to say that I don't accept it, and I want to try and defend the authorized version translation as being undoubtedly the correct translation of the meaning of what the apostle was saying. Now then, how do I propose to do so? Well, here are my arguments. One, as all these statements which the apostle is making in this whole context emphasize that what has happened to the Lord Jesus Christ 
has also happened to us and vice versa. This exposition which holds on to this word justified implies therefore of necessity that the Lord Jesus Christ was justified from sin. And that is something that is never said in the scripture. It is never said that the Lord Jesus Christ had any need to be justified or was ever justified from sin. Even when he bore our sins, he had no need to be justified. It is we were justified. You're never said, you're never told that he was justified. But if you translate this and it says that we who have died with him have been justified from sin, well then, because it's true of us, it's true of him. Because what is true of him is true of us. He therefore must have been justified from sin. A, a thought which is never given us in the scripture. Secondly, that expl explanation, that exposition, also carries this suggestion. That we are justified because we have died to sin. It must mean that, mustn't it, if that explanation is true. He that has died is justified from sin. Therefore, the cause of our justification is our having died with Christ to sin. It's because our old man has died that we are justified. But we have seen at great length in chapter 4 and elsewhere that the apostle's mighty argument is this, that God justifies the ungodly. We are justified before we are joined to Christ. It is this forensic declarative statement of God. He doesn't justify the godly. And any man whose old man has died with Christ can no longer be described as ungodly. He is in Christ and joined to Christ. So it seems to me that it's a very serious denial of the doctrine of justification by faith only and that God justifies the ungodly. It is to reverse the true order of justification and our union with Christ. Justification comes before our union and not after it. So I reject that exposition on those grounds also. Then in addition to that I would urge this, that in this whole chapter the apostle is not dealing at all with the question of justification. He's dealt with that. He's finished with it. It's because he's finished with it, he is able to go on in this way. We are no longer dealing with justification. And therefore to reintroduce the idea of the justification of the sinner from the guilt of sin at this point is to introduce an irrelevancy, is to introduce something that is entirely extraneous to the point and the issue that the apostle has in hand. Very well then. What is the cause of the trouble? I suggest the cause of the trouble is this. That expositors have been so fascinated by this one word, which is normally translated justified, that they've seen nothing else. You know, a knowledge of Greek is a good thing, but it can be a dangerous thing. And the scholars, you see, they take this one word, justified, and that, that determines their whole outlook. It makes them ignore the context. What do I mean? I mean this. Haven't you noticed that here in this seventh verse, the apostle does an extraordinary thing. He, from the beginning, has been talking about us, we. Listen to him. 
And know we not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Then suddenly he says, for he, he that is dead. Why doesn't he say we that are dead? If he really is talking about us and we who are united to Christ and who therefore have died with him, well, why does he suddenly talk about he? He's talking about we the whole time. He goes on in verse 8 to do it again. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him and so on. Back again to the we. It's we everywhere except in verse 7 where he says he suddenly. What is the significance of this? Well, it seems to me that it's this. The apostle is here, I suggest, not referring to us at all. He is making a general statement. He is not referring here to those of us who have died with Christ. Because what he says is this. He that has died, he doesn't add with Christ. But all the people who accept the other exposition have to say, with Christ, died with him or with Christ. But the apostle didn't say that. He that has died, he says. And he means what he says. If he had meant those who have died with Christ, he would have continued saying, we, or all of us, or so many of us as have died with Christ. But here he deliberately says, he who has died is freed from sin. Well, what does he mean, then? What is he saying? Well, my explanation is that he's here making a general, universal, axiomatic statement about any man who dies. What he's saying, in other words, is this. It is an axiomatic statement, I say, of universal validity. He is saying, when a man dies, by his dying, he is acquitted from and remains absolutely free as far as sin is concerned. When a man dies, he can no longer sin. When a man dies, he goes out of the realm of sin. When a man dies, he can't be tempted because he's dead. Sin can't do anything to him, neither can the law which works with sin. Once a man dies, he's outside the jurisdiction of sin. You can't bring a charge against a dead man in a court of law. No, no, he's outside the realm of its jurisdiction. The very fact that he's died puts him quite clear of it. He's no longer in the realm where sin and the law operate. The apostle is just making a general statement. He says, you know, surely, for, he says, isn't it something axiomatic, something which we can all see at a glance, that the moment a man dies, well, he's just outside that realm altogether. So a modern translator has translated it very well like this. He says, once a man has died, he is quit. He is quit of the claims of sin upon him. And I believe that is the correct uh, translation. Once a man dies, you can no longer charge him with the guilt of sin. Well, he's then virtually in the position of being justified. 
You can't bring a charge against a dead man. Well, then he's virtually a man who is justified as far as all that is concerned. A man who has died is a man who's changed his realm. He's outside the realm and the reign and the rule of everything that is connected with sin. It has no power over him. The moment a man dies, automatically the power of sin over that man has come to an end. In other words, the apostle was saying what the authorized translation makes him say. The authorized translation is absolutely right. A man who dies is free, freed altogether from sin and all its realm and its territory in every single respect. It has no power whatsoever with respect to him. So that I can now put verses 6 and 7 together for you like this. Our old man was crucified with Christ in order that we might be delivered in every respect from the slavery of sin. Because every man who has died is entirely free from the power and the reign and the slavery and the tyranny of sin. Well now then you see what he's showing us is this. That because we are united with Christ, we have died with him. And therefore, as is true of any man who dies, we are entirely outside that realm of sin. In other words, you see, we are back again to the statement that he made at the beginning in verse 2. God forbid, how shall we that die to sin? Live any longer therein? And do you remember our interpretation? We said die to sin means this. Died to the realm and the rule and the power and the reign of sin. That was our interpretation. We said the apostle says that we are dead to the reign of sin. In other words, he's going on with what he was saying in chapter 5 verse 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. He's come back to it once more. He's winding up an immediate argument and he says, very well, we've demonstrated what we set out to demonstrate. I told you at the beginning that it's impossible that we should continue in sin like this as we were before and even more because we have died to the realm and the rule and the tyranny and the reign of sin. We ourselves. And then you see he's been showing how that has happened. It's the old man that's dead to all that. We as men are dead to all that rule and realm of reign. Sin still dwells in the mortal body, but not in me. It's in my members, in my body, in my flesh. Not in me. I am like a man who's died. I've got nothing more to do with it. I'm entirely outside its territory and its realm and its rule and its reign. Death, you see, sinneth reigned unto death. It can't go any further than that, but it does go as far as that. And that is why he will go on to emphasize that we have also risen with Christ. Very well. But if my explanation is correct, I still have to answer this question, which I've no doubt many of you are very anxious to ask. Well, then what do you make of verses 18, 20, and 22 
where you've reminded us this word free and freed is used. Why didn't the apostle use the same term in all these instances? It seems to me the answer is a very simple one. He was not concerned to say the same thing. In the section we are looking at now, he is dealing with sin as a great legal power. In the section from verse 15 onwards, he is dealing with sin as a sort of slave master, a slave owner. A very different conception. So he's thinking in different pictures, in different terms. He's thinking here of sin as a legal system, as a, as a government, as an authority, as a realm, and as a kingdom. So he very naturally uses a legal term, justified. But in the other instance, he's thinking in entirely different terms. He's thinking now of slaves and slave owners and a slave market and so on. It's an entirely different realm and different world, a much more practical one. So there, he uses a term which is the obvious term to use when you are dealing with the whole question of slaves and slavery and the freedom of a slave. So again, you can translate verse 18 like this. Being then emancipated from sin's ownership. And that's a very good translation of it. It is emancipation from the ownership of sin. You see, you need a different shade of meaning. What the apostle wants to establish in Romans 6, verse 1 to the end of verse 14 is that we as persons have entirely finished with the rule, the reign, the dominion of sin. He says as far as all that is concerned we've got nothing to do with it. If you like to say so, we are justified from it. I prefer to say we are freed from it. We've entirely finished with it. Not only its guilt, but its power, its everything. We are no longer in that realm. Our old man has died with Christ. And as Christ is no longer in the realm and the reign of sin, as he was and as we'll find him explaining in the next verses, neither are we. We have died to that once and forever. That's what he is concerned to prove. That is what I suggest to you he is proving up to the very hilt. Shall I round off my argument by saying this? That there is very powerful supporting argument to be found in that passage I read at the beginning. The first epistle of Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Did you notice them? For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. What is it? It's this. For he that hath suffered in the flesh, and this means to die, remember, hath ceased from sin, ceased from it, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. You see, those two verses are an absolute parallel with this section that we are considering in the 6th of Romans. Peter, in his way, is trying to say exactly the same thing as the Apostle Paul. Now he says, Our Lord has suffered for us once in the flesh. He came here to do that. Now then he says, You've got to realize, 
that he that hath suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. He puts it, hath ceased from it. He's got no more to do with it. He's quit it. He doesn't belong to it any longer. He's entirely outside that. Now, I turned up the famous Grimm Fair translation at this point, and it puts it like this. It says it means, hath got release from. He that hath suffered in the flesh hath got release from sin. And to have release from sin is just another way of saying is freed from sin. Set at liberty from sin. No longer under its dominion or its rule or its reign. The thing the apostle is going to say in this glorious statement in verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law but under grace. Very well then there is an exact parallel in the statement made by the apostle Peter. They're both saying the same thing. And the thing they're saying is this. That the man who has died with Christ has once and forever as a being, as an entity, as a soul, finished with sin. He should never again raise the question of his justification or, or of his forgiveness or of his final arrival in glory. Whom he justified them, he hath also glorified. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God, yes, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Though we are still here in the body and though we know that sin is in the body and though we fall into sin because I have died with Christ I am saved, and I am as saved now as I am, as I shall be when I'm in the glory. Augustus' top lady has seen it. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgression from view. And then he goes on to say, My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. They are more happy. Why are they more happy? Well, because they've no longer got sin in the body. So they're more happy. They don't know failure. They don't know repentance. More happy. But not more secure. That's the thing the apostle's trying to tell us, you see. And the way to overcome depression and the way to overcome failure is to realize that you are safe. And you're going there. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. But if you're not certain about this, I say, every time you fall into sin, you'll say, well, I wonder whether I am a Christian after all. Have I ever really been converted? Am I really born again? And you're down in the depths of depression. And the moment you are depressed, the devil has a very easy target and he gets you down again and again and again and you remain on the ground groveling in the dust. What's the cure to that? The cure to that is this, is to realize that whether you've sinned or not, you are in Christ. 
That sin has got nothing it can do to you and bring against you. You. That sin only remains in your mortal body. And that even that, because you're in Christ, is going to be delivered. But again, that is what the apostle is going on to say, you see, which we hope to consider next Friday. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe also that we shall live with him, of course. And the rest that follows. But so far, he's only dealing with the negative half of verse 5. That we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Well, in, in, in a sense, you know, that's almost enough. That tells me this. That I, as a man, as a being, as a personality, as an entity, have already, by my death with Christ, finished with the realm and the rule and the reign and the dominion of sin. Any man who has died is automatically, axiomatically, inevitably free from sin. Very well. I do trust that we are clear about the negative aspect. We'll go on next, next Friday, God willing, to the positive aspect. And having finished with that, we'll listen to his tremendous exhortation which he makes on the basis of it all. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank Thee for such wondrous, glorious truth. O oh, we pray that we all may see it so clearly, and that we may believe it because it's Thy Word, that we shall not stagger at it, but that we shall believe it and live by it and act upon it, that we may walk the remainder of our lives here in this faith and in this certain knowledge that we have indeed died to sin, and that we are in Christ in a new life, risen with him, and going forward certainly to the glory which thou hast prepared for us. O oh God, bless thy word to us, and may it come with such force and power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, that any depression, spiritual depression we may ever have suffered from, may be banished once and forever that we shall be able to turn to the accuser and resist him steadfast in the faith and resist the devil and see him fleeing from us. O oh God, grant that all present may enter into this liberating truth and rejoice in it and thus be made more than conquerors over everything that is against them. Hear us, O oh Lord, in this our prayer and receive our humble and unworthy praise. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see him as he is and our very bodies be changed and glorified and we shall be whole and entire without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, perfect in every respect, body included. Amen.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.